Welcome to Paranormal Almanac. With your host, Kurt Sandvig. I'm your host, Kurt Sandvik, and on this week's edition of Paranormal Almanac, let's talk about a man named Nandor. But first, as always, we have shout-outs. That's right, shout-outs going out to our patrons. Head on over to patreon.com slash paranormalalmanac. Shout-outs to Tracy, Matthew, Sandy, Kelly Joe, Menace the Beast, Kick-Ass Magic Robot Webcomic, Lionel, Sandy, Paige, Kosh, Sean, Andrew, Tasha, Scott, Andrea, Devin, Melody, Ricardo, Vicky, Christopher, Vanessa, Marisol, Liam, Roger, Michael, Terminal Animal, Alicia, Becca, Jen, Elizabeth Voidtech, Sherry, Art Muffin, Trudy, Tim, Kenneth, Paul, Ricardo, Ian, Jen, Alexandra, George, Connie, Seth, Jason, Cindy, Kim, Ashley, what's that? Loki, Carrie, Ezram, Robin, Will, Lauren and Phil Mangano, Russell, Donald, April, Seth, Isabel, Audra, Dorian, Cindy, Bob, the Sean Bishop, Stacy, Paula, Jerry, Leos, Gostin, Lindsay, Hahn, Megan, Matt, Aaron, Amy, Jeff T, Harley, Suzanne, Joe, Lawrence, Melissa, Lauren Strawn, hey howdy hi, Veronica, Autumn, J Mark, Manning, Carolyn, Martin, Jade, Nanashi, Chuck, Todd, Jamie, and Elijah Hendrickson, who I just had some spent some time with. It was amazing. Juliana, Dan, Laura Pitts, and Gamer Fan. And as always, two very special shout-outs to Joe Teague and Stitch. Alrighty, before I get to the merch and all the other fun stuff and paranormal news and all that jazz, let me just say that this is actually take two of this episode. That's right. I recorded this entire episode, I don't know, Wednesday or Thursday? I think it was Thursday. Um, recorded the whole episode, you know, did my whole spiel, everything, finished it up. All right, let's go back and let's edit out some of these ums and ahs and big spaces and all that fun stuff, Kurt. Okay, well, what's this? Corrupted file? That's right. I lost the entire episode. But luckily, I remember exactly what I said, word from word. No, I don't. I don't remember any of what I said, but that's okay. I, you know, got really angry, got really frustrated, tried to recover it a number of times. It just wouldn't recover. And I said, forget it. I will do this episode, you know, because it's a great episode. I did all the work for it. I might as well put these episodes out. Because for a minute, I was like, that's it. I'm not doing this episode. This is the universe telling me never to do an episode about a man named Nandor. No, no. Did, did all the work. Figured might as well get the episode out. So that's where we're at today. This is actually take two of an episode about a man named Nandor. But head on over to tpublic.com. Search for Paranormal Almanac. I think it's just tpublic.com slash store slash Paranormal Almanac. But just look for the one that says Paranormal Almanac. When you see the 20 plus shirts and stickers and hats and all the different styles and stuff that we have, mugs and everything, you found the right place. Hope you guys enjoy some of this merch because it, uh, it's been a lot of fun making it. I'll be honest. It's been a lot of fun making it. All righty, let's head on right on into Paranormal News and let's get going. Paranormal News. There was this one night we were out in the field and suddenly there was this incredibly bright light descending from the sky. Next thing we knew, we were in this big white room and standing in front of me was this slimy two-legged creature with these wide lizard-like eyes across its face. Face. 
again, Elliot Van Wick, what an amazing one. Thank you so much for that intro to Paranormal News. Absolutely incredible. All righty, before I do this, I have to click on, I thought I just did that on everything. Pause on all sites. There we go. The first story in Paranormal News, redacted, classified, UFO report reveals new info on shapes. Investigation. Oh, God, there's an ad playing. Oh, thank you. Please stop. Shut up. I'm talking, lady. Uh, let's re- I'll do it real quick. Redacted classified UFO report reveals new info on shapes investigation into unexplained phenomena. Freedom of Information Act site, The Black Vault, published redacted report. That's right. We were just talking about this one the other day. It's going to take him like 16 years to get all the stuff from um, Barack Obama and all of his records. But a classified government report on unexplained aerial phenomena shows the U.S. is investigating the shapes of objects sometimes seen by military pilots and reveals details of the plans to investigate them. It's highly redacted version of the report that was released. It was provided to Congress last June, was published by the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, John Greenwald on his website, The Black Vault. A shorter public version of the report was published around the same time by the director of the National Intelligence. The longer declassified version published by Black Vault closely mirrors that report, but with the additional specific details, especially about the shapes of the UAPs, or UFOs as, you know, they used to be called. The most common shape described by military personnel in the reporting was a redacted. Oh, already redacted. Military aviators describe many of these redacted objects as redacted or that redacted. Several sightings were redacted and resembled redacted shapes like a redacted or a redacted. See, look how informative that is. That's that's what we get for Freedom of Information Acts. We get the words redacted 15 times. Let's see if it goes on to say that... Uh, They recorded 144 reports from 2004 to 2021, including 80 that involved observation with multiple sensors. The classified version published by the Black Vault also reveals further details about the nature of the report. In 18 incidents described in 21 reports, observers reported unusual UAP movement pattern or flight characteristics. Some UAP appeared to remain stationary in winds aloft, moving against the wind, maneuver abruptly, or move at considerable speeds without discernible means of repulsion. In a small number of cases, military aircraft systems processed radio frequency energy associated with the UAP sightings. So I'm not going to repeat all of that. Find the article. It's uh, it's everywhere. This one's from Fox News, but it's everywhere. Um, for all you people saying they were balloons, they were a bird, they were chasing something like, like a balloon was just floating along in the wind, and these Planes are going 10,000 miles this uh, per hour this way, so when they look at it down, it looks like it's moving 10,000 miles per hour that way. No. None of that is true. They have already debunked that they are not balloons. They are not birds. They are not tiny little objects just floating in the wind. These appear, appear to remain stationary in winds aloft, move against the wind, Maneuver abruptly or move at considerable speeds without discernible means of propulsion. Stop it, all you skeptics that keep writing to me saying it was a balloon. They were chasing tinfoil. They were chasing a weather balloon. No, they weren't. They weren't at all the military. The United States military that you guys keep saying, oh, the military knows exactly what it is. You're just an idiot. They're not UFOs. The military is saying the exact opposite of what you're saying. 
They go on to say the description is consistent with previously published video of the UAP, including some declassified by the Pentagon in 2020. The most heavily redacted parts of the report published by the Black Vault are from pages and sections that do not appear on the initial unclassified version at all. That's cool. Those include sections about common shapes and less common irregular shapes reported by observers of the phenomena. The entire section about the shapes are redacted, though. The government has said that the UAP probably lack a single explanation, but that it classifies them into five categories. Those are airborne clutter, including birds and balloons, natural atmospheric phenomena, including ice crystals or thermal fluctuations, USG or industry development programs, meaning classified programs by U.S. entities, foreign adversary systems, Russia, China, other countries, and then another final catch-all, the other category which the government says we may require additional scientific knowledge to successfully collect, on, analyze, and characterize. These are very big words, very important big news. It's another step closer to disclosure. As I said, disclosure is not going to be just one thing. It's going to be multiple things. Here's another step closer to disclosure. The report published by the Black Vault also includes a section on the geospatial intelligence, signal intelligence, signals intelligence, sorry, human intelligence, and measurement and signature intelligence used to observe the phenomena. But, unfortunately, those sections are also heavily redacted. They say that given the national security implications associated with potential threats posed by UAPs operating in close proximity to sensitive military activities, installations, critical infrastructure, or other national security sites, the FBI is positioned to use its investigative capabilities, capabilities and authorities to support deliberate DOD and interagency efforts to determine attribution. Blah. That's what that is. A whole lot of blah. But I thought it was very cool. More stuff keeps coming out. Little by little. That's all we can ask for. And then the next story is very similar. I'm not going to read the whole thing. It says the creator of the blackvault.com says the Pentagon is holding back on secrets of the UFO. When you look at all these redactions, although discouraging, that in itself tells a story. When you really look at some of the other areas, they don't want to tell you the capabilities of what these unidentified aerial phenomena are. Yeah. They go on to say they won't tell you a single visual observation on what shapes these are. It really solidifies the secrecy behind what these UAPs really are. That begs the question, why? Why is a simply a shape of a vehicle a threat to national security if they tell the national public? What could that reveal? Yeah, what could... Exactly. Come on, guys. Already up next in Paranormal News. If you live in Arizona, you might be interested in this one. 13% of all UFO sightings in Arizona are spotted in Tucson. This is through the National UFO Reporting Center. According to the National UFO Reporting Center online database, 13% of all UFO sightings in Arizona are spotted in Tucson. The collection of reports reveals that 604 of the 4,639 documented UFO sightings in Arizona are Tucson-based. The Grand Canyon state only accounts for 3% of the country's total 127,302 reports. Arizona's latest spotting happened in Phoenix Thursday, March 3rd at about 8 o'clock in the morning. A witness described it as egg-shaped. Let me see, does it go on to say? Nope, it does not. Oh, wait, there's a little photo of it. That doesn't look very egg-shaped. That looks like a cow without a without its head shaped. It's like a black little blob is what that looks like. 
So yeah, if you live in Arizona, go to Tucson. You're more, more likely to see a UFO. Up next in paranormal news, $3,200 raised for the new Shawnee Sasquatch statue, and it's been ordered. After a well-known tourist attraction in Harrisburg was damaged, the community rallied together to raise money for a new one. According to a Facebook post last week, the Shawnee Sasquatch was kicked over on Thursday. Don't fucking kick Bigfoot statues. Look, you all know the rule of you don't fucking shoot Bigfoot, but don't fucking kick Bigfoot statues. Come on, that's a dick move. But donations were being accepted for a brand new one, and as of Monday, $3,200 was raised. So, there's oh, and there's still no word on who might have damaged the original statue. If you're a listener to this podcast, and you kicked over the statue, one, fuck you. Two, don't fucking listen to my podcast. I don't want you as a fan. Fuck off. All righty, up next in paranormal news. This is one that I was saving to watch right here, so I'm, I'm very curious about this one. It says, residents of a village in Bolivia claim to have witnessed a UFO landing, and the UFO subsequently released a chupacabra into their community. The very strange incident reportedly occurred in the town of Montegudo? Montego? Montegudo? Montegudo? I don't know. I'm sorry. Um, earlier this month, when observers first spotted a puzzling halo of light appear in the sky and then descend to the ground, there was a crash like thunder, recalled Bolivian UFO researcher Javier Aliaga. Aliaga. Sure who indicated that the object appeared to be throwing fire. Things took an even weirder turn when the, on the scene, when those on the scene saw some kind of entity exit the craft. According to the eyewitnesses, the uh, thing was approximately one foot tall, had three fingers on each of its hands, and it also was said to have possessed very large eyes, yet was unable to see. How the hell did they know that? Upon exiting the UFO... The creature proceeded to wander the streets, frightening children who were watching this all unfold. The creature, which might be likened to the legendary Chupacabra, eventually vanished into the night, and the craft that appeared to deliver it to Earth also disappeared. All that was left behind from the case was some curious impressions on the ground and several shaken residents. All right, well, let's see. Los vecinos de un pueblo en Bolivia dicen haber recibido la visita de un uh -huh. extraterrestre. Tienen oh. que se parecía encima al chupacabras yeah. y que persiguió a niños y jóvenes. Además, un experto asegura que un objeto brillante cayó ahí justo en el mismo lugar. Bernabé López uh -huh. cuenta más. Sure. Un visitante de otro planeta. Es lo que están seguros de haber visto en este vecindario. tiene dos ojos tiene. Alright, so uh, for all you Spanish-speaking um, listeners, there you go. There's something for you. Uh, tell me what he said. But uh, apparently he was a kid. He said it was something with a big head. It was kind of creature-y, kind of looked like the chupacabra. I was hoping for a video of the chupacabra, but sadly, I did not get that. Alrighty, up next in Paranormal News. A post-publication career, a follow-up expedition, reveals avalanches at Dyatlov Pass. If you guys don't know what the Dyatlov Pass is, it happened in 1959. It's a very bizarre story. I did a full episode on it. It's, a, it's in Russia. Um, it's a very, very bizarre story that somebody thinks, a lot of people think, that can be explained through a simple avalanche. So they said that our 2021 study shows that a snow slab avalanche is a plausible explanation of the 1959 Dyatlov Pass incident. I don't think it explains everything, but, you know, they did more work than I did, so who's to say? They said that the, um, 
the deaths of the mountaineers had variously been attributed to an infrasound-induced panic. Or animals, attacks by yetis, or local tribesmen, winds, snow avalanche, a romantic dispute, KGB CIA secret activities, ballistic rockets, or nuclear weapons test. Yes, those are all possible explanations for it. But they say their study said a snow slab avalanche avalanche was the trigger. Using basic physics, we showed that that in spite of a lower-than-usual apparent slope angle, scarcity of avalanche signs, uncertainty about the trigger, and unusual injuries of the victims, such an avalanche is indeed, quote, a possible explanation. So there you go. There's a possible explanation into that mystery that's been going on since 1959, Definitely not confirmed and not, uh, I don't know, I I can kind of see that, but some of the details from that, the way that the guys were found, like I can get that they cut themselves out of the tent, that's why some of them had clothes on, some of them didn't, I can understand that, that's all part of an avalanche, but from that point forward, the way the bodies were found doesn't line up with avalanche in my mind, but you know, I've never been in an avalanche, so what the hell do I know? And with that, let's, uh, let's take a quick break, we'll be right back. We are back. All righty. Let's take another look at poltergeist explanation, possible explanations, haunting possible explanations, the scientific, the use of science, I guess I should say, to try and explain the paranormal and mostly about a man named Nandor, who I'm really hoping you say, who? I hope this one is a surprise for you. If not, I hope you learn something new about this man that has the same thought about poltergeists, and I mean decades before I ever thought it, but as me, he has the same thoughts about poltergeists as me. Something that I thought I was one of the, you know, leading people to discover and put in piece together, the science that um, puberty and poltergeists seem to go hand in hand, especially with younger girls in the house. If you don't know what I'm talking about, I've done a couple of episodes about poltergeists, and about the alarming connection or alarming amount of connections to girls going through puberty and it causing some kind of a psychic trauma that many have described as poltergeist activity or miscal or misclassified as poltergeist activity. Go back and listen to those episodes. It's actually kind of interesting. Again, trying to use science to explain the paranormal. But this guy had this thought decades before me. Not only that, but I want to talk about two of some of the uh Two of his most intriguing or best or better cases that I thought were really interesting cases that I don't think get enough word word about town. What am I trying to say? I don't think they're they're well-known enough, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Now, like I said, his name is Nandor Fodor, Dr. Nandor Fodor, to be exact. And I'm sure you're thinking, Nandor, you mean the funny vampire from what we do in the Shadows TV show? Well, no, no, different Nandor, but... He does have a cool accent like that, Nandor. You'll listen to him in a little bit. But uh, let's get to the beginnings of him. His name was Nandor Fodor. He was born in 1895 in Hungary. He received a a doctorate in law in Budapest. He moved to New York and eventually became one of the leading authorities on poltergeists, hauntings, and the paranormal. This was at a time when those medium charlatans were running rampant. He tried to debunk some of them, 
And more importantly, he was devoted to the science of it all. He published skeptical newspaper articles on mediumships, which pissed off a lot of the mediums at the time. So he's a very, you know, basically he was a skeptical believer like me. He was trying to use science to explain the paranormal, like I said, and, you know, basically, he's just a cool guy. Now, if you've listened to any of the previous Poltergeist episodes, you get my theory about Poltergeists, whether you agree with it or disagree with it. But, like I said, Nandor had these same theories in the 1930s. He said, the Poltergeist is not a ghost. It is a bundle of projected repressions, typically around the time of puberty, and most often in girls. Yep, yep, and yep, and from everything I can, everything I can find. Here is the only known recording of Nandor talking a little bit about it. I'm not going to play the whole thing, but I do want to play a bit about it because it's very interesting to hear it from the man himself. Oh, there's that ad. Let me banter for another one second. Here we go. Spirit that mm-hmm. throws things about, makes things vanish and reappear, and causes a good deal of annoyance. It is called a ghost because the agency which does these things is unseen. So people have no other way of designating it as a ghost. Actually, the poltergeist is not a ghost. It's a kind of a psychological outburst accompanied by some release of nervous energy from certain organisms which for motives particular to themselves are responsible for the phenomena. Are these spirit entities that come no, the No, I don't believe that they are spirits. That is, it is the spirit of the living, usually a young boy or girl around the age of puberty, who, unknown to himself, is responsible for such occurrences. Well, does this youngster actually do these things? In other words, uh, in a dream state or in a state of hypnosis that he gets As out of bed or asleep. Like as if he were asleep and dreaming about it and that the dream actually takes place. He does not know that he is responsible for it, though he may be aware that in some way he is connected with the disturbances. So there you go. There's just a little piece. It goes on for another nine minutes. If you guys want to uh, listen to the whole thing, it definitely is worth listening to. I'll put it up on the uh, Facebook pages, uh, Paranormal Almanac fan page and the regular Paranormal Almanac page. Um, or you can just look up Dr. Nando, Nandor Fodor on poltergeist, hauntings, ghosts, and psychic phenomenons. Basically, if you go to YouTube and you type in Nandor Fodor, you're either going to hear, you know, dumb podcast about him, which I don't think there are a ton, but, um, you know, chances are you're going to find this one pretty damn quick. And it's a very neat, like I said, it's the only known, yeah, it's the first one that came up. It's the only known recording of Nandor Fodor. Uh, it's an interview recording speaking on psychic phenomena. It's really neat to listen to. Uh, yeah, it's the top one that comes up. There's only a couple of podcasts, actually, only a couple of podcasts that have talked about Nandor Fodor, and this is now another one. So there you go. So let's talk about um, let's talk about one of his biggest cases. First, well, there's two cases, but the first one, let's talk about the first case. It's about the Ash Manor Ghost, or the Ash Manor Poltergeist, and it happened in Sussex, England, in the 1930s. 
Now, the house is built in the 13th century. It was burnt down. It was built upon, you know, then they rebuilt it, and they built it upon it numerous times throughout the century, changing the layouts numerous times. As you guys know, that tends to piss off ghosts, you know, a fair bit if you start building up and rebuilding on stuff that's already been there since their time. But um, it wasn't until Mr. and Mrs. Keel who's, it's not their real name, but it's the name given to them by Nandor to protect their identities. You got to remember this at the 1930s. Wasn't a big, you know, it was a very big deal. Wasn't a very popular thing to be saying like, hey, I've got a ghost and let me talk about this ghost a lot. Even though the 30s and the mediumships kind of like skyrocketed, the whole spiritualism kind of skyrocketed, you were still ridiculed and looked down upon by most of society if you talked about the paranormal. So, Nandor, thankfully, gave him the name Mr. and Mrs. Keel. Now, they purchased the property, and they moved in on June 24th, 1934. They would later find out, though, that the house had a reputation by the locals as being haunted and generally evil. Kurt here, how about this? If you live next door to a house that is haunted or, quote, generally evil, how about you tell the people who were looking at buying it? Oh, look, there's a, look, honey, there's a couple. They're coming by to look at the generally evil house. One second, you go out on your lawn, you go, hey, you want to buy that house? Well, you know, it's a nice looking house, but it's generally evil. Don't wait for shit to go crazy a few months after they move in and then go, oh, yeah, yeah, your house is generally evil. You should not have bought that house. But no, no, they didn't do that. No one told them. So they move in with their 16 year old daughter and their servants, and almost immediately, strange shit starts to happen. They thought someone was living in the attic because they kept hearing someone walking loudly back and forth up there so often that they actually kept popping up into the attic to be like, ha, caught ya. Nobody there, even though they could still hear the footsteps while they were standing up there. There was nobody in the attic, and also, there was no floorboards in the attic. Even though it was like clear as day, sounds of someone walking on floorboards. Then, a little later on, 3.35 a.m., November 18, 1934, the report says Mr. Keel was awakened by three heavy bangs on his bedroom door. He jumps up, he opens it, no one was there. So he went down the hall to see if his wife heard it because she was in her room. More on that later. And uh, she heard the knocks, too. She's like, yep, I heard those knocks. I don't know what it was. I don't know who was doing it. That's weird. Next night, bam, bam, two knocks on his door. Mr. Keel jumps up, runs out, nothing. Next night, happens again. So first one, three knocks, then two knocks, then one knocks. All really loud, crazy loud knocks banging on his door. So he goes out of town on November 25th. While he was gone, Nothing happened in the house. Then, that night, he comes back. He said his room was oddly freezing and felt heavy. Then at 3 a.m., another one bang at his door happened. So he runs to the door, opens it, expecting to see nobody, but not this time. This time, he sees, quote, a little oldish man dressed in a green smock, very muddy breeches and gaiters a slouch hat on his head, and a handkerchief around his neck. Now, he didn't know who the man was, so he tried to talk to him. He's like, who the hell are you? Why are you banging on my door? It's 3 a.m. Why'd you get in my house? You know, shit like that. Gets absolutely no response from the man. Like, the man doesn't even register that Mr. Keel is there. 
So he grabs him. Well, so he tries to grab him anyway because he said his hand went right through him, which caused Mr. Keel to faint. I can't blame the guy. Maybe I would faint too. I can't, I can't say. I've never had a full body apparition banging on my door for, you know, nights in a row. But Mr. Keel faints. He wakes up to find that he was moved to his wife's bed in her, in her room. And Mrs. Keel said that she went to get him some brandy to kind of like calm his nerves. When uh, she goes around the corner and guess who she sees? Yep, a little old dude in front of Mr. Keel's bedroom. She said at first she saw only his feet and his leggings. And then gradually all of them appeared. She observed a red handkerchief around his neck and a pudding basin hat upon his head. She said his face was red, his eyes were malevolent and horrid, and his mouth was opening, open and dribbling. Uh, he stared at her stupidly, she said, not really registering that she was there. First, she thought he was a vagrant who broke into their house, so she doesn't try to touch him like Mr. Keel. Nope, she tries to punch him. But her fist went right through the guy, so she ran back into her bedroom and barricaded the door. Now, eventually, they, uh, they you know, kind of get their nerves up, probably took a, a chug of brandy, but they go out to search for the green man, as they called him, and they couldn't find him at all, though they said they saw him numerous times after that. Now, here's what Nandor wrote in his files from when they told him. The green man frequently appeared in front of the chimney in Mr. Keel's room, which led Mrs. Keel to suspect that something was hidden inside the chimney wall. She also found that she had the power to make the ghost vanish by touching it, but that Mr. Keel, <clears throat> pardon me, but Mr. Keel could not do the same. Once, the ghost raised his head, and Mrs. Keel could see his neck had been cut all the way around. She concluded that the ghost was a murder victim and speculated that his skeleton was what was hidden inside the chimney. All right, so from this point on, how about you call him, I don't know, the Slit Throat Man instead of the less impressive name, the Green Man. The Green Man is the least of the stuff about him. But no, they went on to call him the Green Man. So the servants say, fuck this, and they quit. Again, rightfully so, can't blame them. The Keels try to get the usual, you know, like try to do the usual, they get like a clergyman to come and bless the house. And they try to get a clergyman to come and exercise the ghost. Well, that didn't work. All it did was piss off Green Man some more. So they post an ad in the newspaper asking someone to come and get this freaking slit gross, slit throat Green Man out of their house. Unfortunately, I couldn't find the actual ad, so I'll just assume it was something like this. Wanted. Do Green Men with slit throats that you can't punch scare you? No then you might be who we're looking for. We need someone, male or female, to come to our house and take the ghost with them. That's right. Free ghost to a good home. Please bring help to haul him away. He's harmless. All he does is knock on your door. That's just a guess, but I'm pretty sure it's pretty close to that. All right, so the ad works, and two men show up, and they uh, they say, you know, look, we're not exactly exorcists by trade, but, you know, how hard could it be? We'll give it a go. Spoiler, it didn't go well. So they walk through the house, and then for no reason, they claim that the house had been built upon a druid circle and that the priest had riled up an evil force from the druid circle. 
they said, uh, you know, not much can do, you know, we can do about it because of the Druid Circle. And, you know, we can't really exercise. A, a, you didn't mention the Druid Circle. We can't really exercise a ghost from it. So, you know, we got to go. So they just leave. Nandor suspected they got scared and went, oh, crap, this might be real. And they, like, fucked off. So. Moving forward to January 1936, an amateur photographer trying to get a picture of the green man took a photo of the landing at midnight, which showed, I don't know, like a cocoon-like shape. It looks to me kind of like a double exposure of a Virgin Mary statue in front of the stairs. I don't really believe that picture. But then in 1936, Nandor finally gets on the scene. He gets involved at the invitation of a writer who was including the Ash Manor haunting in a book about ghosts. So Nandor shows up and he says... Immediately, I noticed that the family are visibly exhausted from the ordeal. So he says, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to move right in. Not only am I going to move into your house, I'm going to move into the haunted room. And he starts his investigation. Problem here is the house goes instantly quiet and nothing happens while Nandor is there. Now, if I was a family member, I would say, all right, good, Nandor, you can live here forever. But uh, so Nandor invites medium Eileen J. Garrett to come and stay at the house, too, to see if maybe she can feel or sense something or help them in any way since it doesn't seem to be happening when Nandor's there. So she stays at the house. She shows up on July 25th with Dr. Elmer Lindsay and her daughter Eileen. That's right. Party at the Keel house. Eileen says that she immediately feels the presence of a man who has been, who's been imprisoned and had suffered a great deal. Mr. Keel says, well, yeah, have you met my wife? No, not really. Uh, what he said was that, um, yeah, that's, that's kind of what we're feeling about the green man. We think he's been in prison, something to do with the chimney, something weird is going on. And Eileen says, you know what? The man has a secret. He was a half-brother to either Edward IV or Edward V, and he had started a rebellion. He was tortured because of some papers that had to do with the succession of one of the Edwards and was left crippled as a result. The chimney may have been the hiding place of these papers. Then things get weird, weirder. They all go to the chimney, and Eileen goes into a trance. And her control, a being named Uvani, starts speaking through Eileen. Uvani gave his explanation for the haunting. He says that ghosts manifest when an atmosphere of unhappiness enables a spirit to draw energy and revive its own sufferings. Haven't you discovered that these things only happen to you when you are in a bad emotional state, physically or mentally disturbed, Uvani said? Don't you realize that you yourself vivify this memory? Then Ivani went on to say that in the early 15th century, a jail had existed near the house where many unhappy souls had their lives lost and they all lingered about. Anyone living in the house who was, quote, nervously depleted would give out energy which would attract a ghost who would use the energy to build up itself like a picture on the stage. It gets weirder-er. Ivani then announces, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to let that ghost, the green man, Possess Eileen. You know what? Gee, thanks, uh, Uvani. How about Eileen get a saying in this? If any of this is real. Sounds like bullshit to me, but we'll keep going. So, Nandor says that Eileen's features changed dramatically. And in the report, he 
He wrote, the Keels then said her face looked exactly like the face of the green man. Okay, that's weird. That's really freaking weird. Now, the ghost identified himself as an apparent medieval accent. Oh, in an apparent medieval accent, sorry, as Charles Edward. So now we have a name. He claimed he was robbed of his land by the Earl of Huntington and betrayed by a former friend, Buckingham. He had been separated from his wife and his son and left to rot in the jail that was built right by there. His son, he said, was fighting for an ungrateful king. But when pressed to identify the king, oh no, Charles said, nope, can't really say. But he did ask everyone there to help him wreak vengeance upon his enemies. All right, that last part was kind of cool. Uh, so Nandor kind of like um, pleads with Charles, basically, through Uvani, through Eileen. To, uh, it's too many throughs, but you get the idea. So he kind of pleads to Charles to like, hey, you know what, man? Go be with your family in the afterlife. You know, you're dead and shit. Go away. You know, give up the vengeance. Basically, stop being a dick to the keels. And Charles says, oh, all right, yeah, sure. Why not? And he leaves. When Eileen, when, as soon as he leaves, Eileen wakes up. And basically, she says, this house is clean. But no way in shit in hell was it clean because the very next night, Mr. Keel was awakened to the sounds of banging on his door. And, you know, not a spoiler. Yep, Mr. Green was standing there trying to speak this time. So they're like, ah, shit. And they call in another medium who Nandor didn't give any info at all to, he said. That medium said that she saw a green man with a slit throat and she recommended a seance at the house. So if that is true, if there really was a completely, if there was a medium that had no knowledge, no forethought, no you know foreknowledge of this place, and, and Nandor didn't give her any info, and she didn't speak to Eileen or Uvani or anybody else, if she really did just show up and say that, that's really cool and very interesting. But again, so she comes in, she says, oh yeah, there's a green man, he's got a slit throat, he's right there. And then she recommends a seance at the house. But for some reason, Nandor says no thank you and instead invites Eileen back. And he told the Keels to leave the house during this part of the investigation. So Eileen and Nandor are walking around the house. And once again, the ghost pleads for help in getting vengeance. Uvani shows up again and announces that the Keels had used, quote, this poor unhappy creature in order to embarrass each other, and that they did not genuinely want the ghost to leave, which is why the ghost is still around. He also said that if unhappiness in the house persisted, the house would become truly haunted and unhappy for all future tenants. So, Nandor brings the keels back, separates them, and starts interrogating them one at a time. Here's what he found out. Mrs. Keel confessed to him that her husband was a homosexual and that it was a great deal of tension existing between them because of that. Then Mr. Keel says, Ah, crap. Yep, what Uvani said was true. I did want the ghost to say, to stay. But now he said he felt the ghost was possessing him. Mr. Keel said he would let the ghost go. And it was fine, you know, it was, I, I get it, I get that I'm the one causing all this crap, I'm going to let the ghost just go away. I'll release him, if you will. So he does that. He releases the ghost, 
and that's the last anyone ever heard or saw anything in that manner. So it seemed to work. It really seemed to work. I thought that was kind of cool. It was a little, little batshit crazy at the beginning there, or actually throughout the story, but I don't 100% believe Eileen, but let's get back to what Nandor thought. So Nandor, trying to use science to figure out the ghost, was really determined to find out about Charles Edward. He wanted to find out, was there any history or any science or knowledge, like, you know, real things that can be tied to these events? And guess what? There was no Charles Edward. The whole backstory was a lie. He concluded, it was all an invention of Mr. Keel's subconscious. But I got to say, to me, Kurt here, it seems to me that it was Eileen and Uvani who made, who made that shit up. So it wasn't Mr. Keel. Yeah, maybe Mr. Keel was legitimately, a, you know, holding on to the ghost for whatever reason or causing the stuff, which seems to be another theory. But, um, but yeah, how about you don't throw everything on um, Mr. Keel because he was a closeted homosexual? How about you throw a lot of that shit onto Eileen and Uvani who told them all about that Charles Edward bullshit uh, jail stuff. So yeah, it turned out, nope, there was no jail. Nope, there was nothing in the chimney. Nope, there was no Charles Edward. It was all BS. But the ghost, you know, part of it seemed to be real, and it seemed to cease the second he told Mr. Keel, you got to let this thing go. Now, Nandor did say, though, that paranormal events did happen throughout the house, and many people I witnessed the ghost, even those outside the family. He even said that random people that came by the house even saw the green man. And even the family dog, he said, saw the green man. So there was something to it. He concluded, it may be that those who put themselves in an unguarded psychological position in a place filled with historical memories and traditions do on rare occasions, come into contact with a force or an intelligence other than their own. All right. I was thinking it was probably the daughter, but she never really was mentioned ever again. They just said, oh, yeah, she has a 16-year-old daughter. Then nothing. Now, I will say that Nandor had not come up with the poltergeist puberty theory yet, so maybe he didn't even think to connect the daughter, didn't even want to, you know, interview the daughter. He seemed to think it was all about the closeted homosexuality of Mr. Keel. All right, I wasn't there, I can't tell you. But the slit throat green man never appeared again. From there, let's move on to the next Nandor case. It's another bizarre one. It's the case of Alma Fielding. Now, Kurt here, I gotta say, unfortunately, all the events about this case are from one book. Now, the book got all of the info from Nandor's files, and I'm sure you could find the book online. I'm not going to give out the name. No free advertising, sorry. That's real easy to find. Just look up Alma Fielding. It's a newer book. The author did get her hands on Nandor's files, though, and discovered this one. So even though all the info is from one source, which I typically don't like to do, it does seem like, no, all of it essentially came from Nandor's files. So I'm going to give it a hard, I'll give it a pass on that one. I'll say, yep, that's cool because it came from the source material itself. And I also I also just took the the case notes and and I got rid of all the flourishing that the author did. Not saying that she did a bad job at all. I don't want to say that, but what I'm saying is that 
you know, when an author writes about something, the author puts themselves into their writing usually. Well, I wanted to take that stuff out of there and just talk about the case itself and put myself into it. So all of it comes from Nandor's files. And for this one, we go to Thornton Heath, a suburb of, suburb of London in 1938. I don't know if you guys have noticed, I'm not going to be editing a hell of a lot of this episode because it's the second time I've talked about all of this. So you're getting a very rough episode, which a lot of people like. So there you go. For those people that like it, there you go. Anyhow, Alma was a 34-year-old housewife, and she had, let's just say, bizarre paranormal things happen to her in the house, such as a six-fingered handprint appeared on a mirror, glasses threw through the bedroom, this is the bedroom that she shared with her husband, Les. Shit started flying all over the place, including like armoires and shit, like, like furniture. So much so that their son, Don, had to dodge a pot of face cream that came flying off of one of her like dressers, came flying off the dresser right at his head when he came into the, the room to investigate it. He said there was nobody standing by this pot of face cream and it flew right by his head. Then, coins flew across the room and hit their lodger, George. That's right, they had another guy there named George who was just a lodger. When he ran into the bedroom to find out why every, all this shit was going on and why everybody was running around in the bedroom, he said, yeah, I walked in and coins just flew you know, right at my face. So, crazy night, bunch of shit's happening, all happening in Alma's room. And Alma thought, well, the next morning that is, Alma thought, well, the cops aren't going to do anything to help or even believe me. So instead, she calls the Sunday Pictorial, the newspaper, because it had invited readers to share their experiences with the supernatural. Because again, 1930s, supernatural stuff was starting to take off. So she's like, all right, this is the perfect place for me to get some help. Now, the Sunday Pick, as it was called, um, they loved her call. They loved her story. They read about it. They dispatched two reporters to the house. The reporters say that as soon as Alma opened the front door, they saw an egg fly down the hall and land at their feet when no one was at the other end of the hall. They did say that, yeah, Don, the son, George, the lodger, and Les, the husband, were all at home, but they were never involved with any of the weird shit that I'm about to tell you about. So she leads them to the kitchen to get, you know, tea, and a pink china dog fell to the floor and then a sharp-bladed tin opener flew through the air at what the reporter said was, quote, head height. Then, in the front parlor, the teacup and saucer lifted out of Alma's hand. The, ha the, uh, the, hosser, the saucer started spinning and then started splintering with a ping as if shot in midair, they said. So she screams, and then when the second saucer exploded in her fingers, and sliced into her thumb. Now, while the wound was being bandaged, the reporters heard a crash from the kitchen. So they run into the kitchen, and they said a wine glass had apparently escaped a locked cabinet and was shattered on the floor. They then saw another egg fly in through the living room door to crack against the sideboard. Then, still not done, then a giant chunk of coal rose up from the grate sailed across the room, inches from the head of one of the reporters, and smacks into the wall. So, yeah, you know, her place was haunted. 
They loved it. Well, not the reporters. They probably crapped themselves and ran out of there. But the paper loved it. So the pictorial published its piece the next morning under the headline, This is the most curious front page story we have ever printed. In an ordinary terrace in Croydon, some malevolent ghost, I'm sorry, some malevolent ghostly force is working miracles. Poltergeist, that's what the scientists call it. The spiritualists, they say it's caused by a mischievous earthbound spirit. All right, so I had to see the paper for myself, and thankfully, it was found, you know, the, the uh, archives found it, and here it is. I'm just going to read it to you. You don't have to look at it. It says, the Sunday pictorial, Terror Night in Home Wrecked by Ghost. That's the article on the left-hand side. The article on the right-hand side, and there's like this woman doing like the splits or some shit. And on the right-hand side, in big letters, Hitler. So... The ghost made a bigger impression than Hitler did for the Sunday pictorial. All right, so on Monday, February 21st, 1938, Nandor comes onto the scene. He opens a letter from an East End clergyman friend of his, the Reverend Francis Nicole, who wanted to tell him about a poltergeist attack in the suburb of Thornton Heath, just south of London, which had been the subject of a report in that week's Sunday pictorial, the one I just told you about, pictorial. I wonder whether you've seen this, wrote wrote the father or reverend, whatever. Unfortunately, the actual address is not given. But he said it sounded to him like the haunting was even more remarkable than a similar case in East London that he had just helped Nandor investigate that past month. So at this time, uh, just to give you a kind of like a backstory, Nandor was an investigator for the International Institute of Psychical Research. Now, the International Institute was one of several psychical research bodies in London, and other ghost hunters would be sure to take an interest in this Sunday pictorial headline. So Nandor's like, shit, I got to get on this thing. I got to be first. He thanks the priest, contacts the paper. He says, you know, not only that, but I've been recently accused in the psychical press of, quote, being cynical about the supernatural and unkind to its mediums, which really pissed off Nandor. He was really into this stuff on a legit level, and he actually sued them for libel. So he figures if he could get to this case, if he can get to Alma and show them that he sincerely cared about the paranormal and spiritualism, they wouldn't have a case at all, and he'd win his lawsuit. So he's like, cool, easy money. I want to investigate this anyway going to look good for me. Let's do this. So he starts working on Alma's case with her. Now, he actually worked on her case, not for like a couple of days or even a couple of weeks, but for several months. He devotes himself to just working on Alma's case. And he said that he found Alma to be the epicenter of the hauntings. Not only that, she even seemed to be able to control them to a certain degree. So Nandor starts working with her over these several months to see what she could do. They both go to the International Institute of Psychical Research's headquarters for seances and also experiments, and Alma's really into it. She's really into it and seems to be really powerful, if you will. 
They go there and uh, Nandor wrote that Alma could make objects appear out of thin air herself. And not just small things like coins or rings, the rings I'll get to in a little bit, but living things like white mice. So Nandor figures there's got to be science that, it can, that can explain this. It has to be past trauma that has given her some ability to either communicate with the other side or to just make these things appear on her own magically, if you will. And it was honestly a pretty good idea. Remember, this is 1930, uh, 1939, I think it was, 1938, 39. Um, you know, it was bombed out England. Alma's husband had what was now known as PTSD from the war. Tensions were high across Europe. Hitler was making the front page as well. So Nandor felt that all of this built up inside Alma and it became the paranormal. Now, skeptics might say what Alma did wasn't much different than what a ton of other spiritualist charlatans were doing around the world at that time. And you may be right, but I can only go by Nandor's files. So trust me, let's keep going for a minute. So Alma could make eggs appear and fly across the room. Hot coals from the fireplace would land on the table, even though she never went near the fireplace. Rings seemed to fly through the air and directly onto her fingers. Nandor witnessed this one numerous times. He was convinced that somehow she could take things from downtown shops psychically he called it psychically shoplifting and bring them through from the other side and into her hands. I love this next tiny bit. Local newspapers wrote about Alma psychically stealing, saying, unlike, quote, the honest, upright ghosts of decaying castles and ancient halls, Alma's mischievous poltergeists were, quote, domestic hoodlums, destructive, subversive, uncouth. But wait, it gets even better. Nandor actually witnessed beetles scurrying out of Alma's gloves. But honestly, to me, to Kurt here, that one seems like the easiest one to fake. You just shove a bunch of beetles into your gloves, and then when you're, you know, in a seance or whatever, you just kind of wiggle your hands until the beetles come crawling out of your gloves. You're like, whoa, look, beetles. But Nandor swears that once during a car journey, a live terrapin, I had to look it up, it's a turtle, uh, appeared out of nowhere on her lap. Again, seems like she could, like, you know, pocket a turtle. Then when he wasn't looking or, you know, focusing on driving or something, she could, like, pull the turtle out of her pants and be like, oh, whoa, turtle out of nowhere, Nandor. But Nandor wasn't that much of a pushover. He was really a skeptical believer. He didn't just believe everything is paranormal because it's not. He debunked a local ghost that turned out to be some dude in a white sheet. He caught charlatans trying to trick him left and right. He knew what to look for. He may not have been as good as like Houdini at like catching charlatans or like, you know, the amazing Randy, but he knew what to look for in the 30s. And he said that Alma wasn't doing that. So take that into consideration when I say Nandor believed Alma was the real deal. He was so skeptical, in fact. You know what? Explain this one, skeptics. If I, I never want to hear from you, but I want to hear from you on this one. He was so skeptical that when Nandor got Alma to the Institute one day for testing, he had a surprise for her. She was strip-searched before being sewn into basically like a body stocking that bound or binded her arms and legs. And yet somehow, 
Alma managed to make things materialize, including jewelry. Still not convinced? He had people follow Alma and track her every movement for days before the next time they were going to go to the Institute to make sure she wasn't out, like, buying beetles and rings and other shit that she could just, you know, have appear. So, he doesn't tell her about any of that. She gets to the Institute. Boom. Strip search again. But that's not enough. Nandor actually has Alma x-rayed. He says nothing was found. And, yep, she made things appear out of nowhere, like a diamante brooch, then an ancient oil lamp, then a white mouse, then a scarab beetle, then a sparrow. Still, after all of that, others at the Institute thought that Alma was hiding any number of things up her vagina and was just tricking Nandor. I gotta say, if she did have an ancient oil lamp, a mouse, a sparrow, and a turtle in her vagina, she deserves the accolations of being the greatest charlatan of the 20th century. Now, I couldn't find any proof, though, of turtles in vaginas. Also, I don't recommend you Google image search turtles in vaginas. You know, the things I gotta do for this podcast. All right, moving on. In March... Nandor arranged a day trip to the Bognor Regis with Alma and four members of the Institute. I have no idea what a Bognor Regis is, a Bognor Regis. Don't care. So, Alma, he said that she noticed that she was, you know, kind of skittish, kind of worried. She agrees. And uh, he said, all right, she agreed to see if her poltergeist could make a ring appear from the local branch of Woolworths. So at the jewelry counter in the Bognor Woolies, Nandor and the four members of the Institute watched Alma select a ring with two stones on a curved bridge. They examined it. They returned it to the assistants. There you go. She's no longer near it. They said it was the nicest ring there, but she didn't want to buy it today, so they leave. The, the shop girl was like, all right, whatever. As the group turned into a road near the shop, Alma said that she heard a rattle in the box that she was carrying. So Nandor takes the box from her, opens it, and yep, there it is. It's the ring that she had. He wrote, my flesh creeped. Everybody, all the witnesses, all four witnesses, couldn't figure out how she, would, how she could have done it because they swore, all four of them swore that they had seen the ring still on the jewelry counter as they left the shop. Nandor said the experience was rather alarming. We had committed psychic shoplifting. So Nandor thinks about it, trying to explain, you know, trying to use science to explain it. And he says it has to be past trauma that's causing this. And he looked into Alma's past and boy, howdy, did she have some trauma. He discovered that Alma had lost at least two children early in her marriage and received no emotional support from her husband left less ever. He also found out that she had a mastectomy, kidney operations, removal of all her teeth, an infinite husband, and it turns out that that lodger from the beginning of the story, I think his name was George, well, they were having an affair, her, her and George, not the husband less than George. So, late in the Alma files, Nandor wrote that he believed that the supernormal phenomena might be caused not by the shades of the dead, 
but by the unconscious minds of the living. He said, or he wrote, there is a door which leads us from the mind we know to the mind we do not know. Now and again, that door is open. Strange things happen. There are manifestations, queer phenomena, transfigurations. At the door to the unconscious, oh, I'm sorry, as the door to the unconscious swung open, a suppressed, a suppressed feeling might escape its human host in material form. He speculated that mediums discharged electromagnetic rays from their fingers and toes or extrude invisible semi-metallic psychic rods or ectoplasmic threads like cobwebs. He says there are, it is plain, strange phenomena about which we, do, we know practically nothing about, just as we once knew nothing of electricity. All right, interesting theory. I don't know about these semi-metallic psychic rods or even ectoplasmic uh, threads like cobwebs, but again, 1939 or 38 at this point when he wrote it, um, yeah, I can get what he's saying, that there has to be something that we just don't know, we don't understand. And one day we're going to understand it just like we kind of understand electricity now. Like science will explain the paranormal. I've been saying that forever. Apparently, Nandor said it before me. So, Nandor wanted science to explain it, and who was better explaining things psychologically than Sigmund Freud himself? Now, Freud was getting close to his death, and he would die in a few short months, but his wife hand-delivered, Freud's wife, hand-delivered Nandor's research to Freud. And surprisingly, Freud wrote Nandor back. Basically, he, he kind of congratulated him on his scientific approach to a supernatural mystery. He said, Your efforts to study the medium psychologically seem to be the right steps. I, you know what? I think it's awesome. Nandor was oh, you know, over the moon with the response. He didn't expect to get anything back. He was making connections that people today think they're, you know, like they're the first ones to connect the dots in the paranormal. But this guy was making them in 1939 talking to the head heads of all things scientific at that time. And they were like, yeah, you're, you're going in the right direction. So I got to say, I love Nandor. But as much as I love Nandor, his colleagues back then did not love Nandor. They were actually appalled that he thought it was psychic trauma and not ghosts. So in the autumn of 1938... They expelled him from the International Institute and actually confiscated his papers. The papers were supposedly destroyed. And, oh, and so ends the case of Alma Fielding, obviously, too. But those papers were not destroyed. Nandor's papers are now in the Society of Psychical Research Archive in Cambridge. And not just copies of them, but the actual files themselves. Because when this author that I was talking about earlier that wrote a book about Alma, when she went to look, go look at these files, expecting, again, like I would have thought, them to be copies or something, she found out, nope. These were Nandor's actual handwritten files, a full dossier on Alma. It was mistakenly cataloged as, hold, as a holding of, quote, Mr. Fielding. Now, the Manila folder contained transcripts of Nandor's interviews and seances with Alma, Lab reports, x-rays, copies of her, contact, or of her contracts, scribbled notes, sketches, photographs of the damage wrought by the poltergeist in Alma's house and on her body as well. And in those notes, Nandor wrote, 
the mechanism of psychic communication will be understood and used with the same facility as the wireless and the telephone. I thought that was incredibly cool. Obviously, I got to try and contact the Society for Psychical Research Archives in Cambridge, see if these files have been transferred online, see if I can get in contact with them or see if I can get a hold of them. Even if they're just the copies online, I want to read the rest of Nandor's files because I have a feeling there will be many more Nandor episodes in the future if I can get my hands on these files, on Nandor's dossiers, whatever you want to call them. What a cool guy. I I was really surprised... A guy in his 30s, uh, in the 1930s, that was born in 1895, had a really logical approach to the paranormal. And yeah, sure, some of his stuff was a little bit, you know, dated and a little bit woo-woo, but the most of it, the majority of it, he seemed to know what he was doing. He thought he might be getting duped by this woman, so he was doing everything he could to try and catch her in the act and couldn't catch her in the act. I mean, doing x-rays of somebody and binding them and strip searching them and shit still happening. Like I said, I don't usually want to hear from the skeptics too much, but for that one, explain that one. Now I know that there were other charlatans who it turns out, you know, even though their hands were tied to the arm, the chair, you know, yeah, the arms of the chair, even though their hands were tied to that, She was using her, like, toes and shit to, like, write on paper and throw things. Yeah, but that was also in the dark. It was also in her own controlled location, and Houdini was very good at catching people. He knew, you know, as a magician, he knew what to look for. Like, Amazing Randy, he was a magician. He knew what to look for. But not everything can be explained. How can four people, including Nandor, see her leave a ring on the counter, and then magically that ring appears in a box in her lap later on. Could be two rings. I know it's I know it's a magic trick. I know you can do that with magic tricks. I get that. But you'd have to be ex- an experienced magician, and there's no evidence that Alma was experienced in any kind of magic at all. So I don't know how to explain that one. Yeah, it was, you know, obviously the the... Shopkeeper was worried or weirded out, but why wouldn't you be? You have four people, four men and a woman, all going through, finding a ring, putting, having everybody examine the ring that she just, that she picks out. She picks out this one ring. They all examine the ring, and she hands it back to the shopkeeper. I can get why the shopkeeper was a little bit like, what the fuck just happened here? What was that about? And yes, maybe, in my mind, I would have let her pick out a ring and go, okay, is that the ring you like? Okay, well, that's not the ring we're going to use. And then I would have picked out a different ring and go, this is the ring we're going to use. Never let her touch it. Show it to her in every way, shape, or form. Put it back on the counter. Like, really do a controlled experiment. But for all intents and purposes, he did the best he could at the time, and she still somehow managed to do it. I don't get the, like I said, I can get the bugs. Bugs out of gloves, that's easy. You shove some Bugs up a glove, they come out of the glove. That one's an easy one. But sparrows and mice and eggs and jewelry and turtles, not all of them can be explained. Some weird shit was going on, and uh, I think it was a cool one. And I'm glad that his notes survived. 
that sucks that they thought they destroyed his files and they kicked him out. You know, that's that's all his all he wanted to do was do the work and they had a different outcome. This shit's still weird and un, unexplained. Psychic trauma or ghost, it's still supernatural how she's doing this stuff. You didn't have to kick the guy out, but he went on. He was fine. He went on. He wrote some books. He did some interviews. He was, you know, fairly sought after. So he did, Nandor did just fine. Don't worry about Nandor, but I still got to get my hands on these documents. All right, with that one, I hope you guys enjoyed this one. This uh, take two of a man called Nandor and, uh, He's a cool guy. Nandor, if you're listening, here's your chance. You're now on the other side. Microphone's right in front of me. You must have had microphones back then. Yeah, you did. Totally. 1930s, you totally did. Here's the microphone. I'm going to turn it up. You can say whatever you want to say. I'll have to go back and listen to that because the little like equalized graphic equalizer actually popped up twice in that silence. So I'm gonna I'm very curious to see, you know, what was there in in the in the silence. But uh, there you go, Nandor. Hope I gave you a chance to say whatever you want to say. Prove that the paranormal is real, and I hope I'm continuing on your work to the way you like it. Because again, you sound like a cool dude. I wish I could interview you. All righty, once again, I'm your host, Kurt Sandvik, and this has been another edition of Paranormal Almanac. Yeah, I need a